Chapter 86 The Tale Other poets have warbled the praises of the soft eye of the antelope and the lovely plumage of the birds that never alights. Less celestial, I celebrate the tale. Reckoning the largest size sperm whale's tail to begin at the point of the trunk where it tapers to about the girth of a man, it comprises upon its upper surface alone an area of at least 50 square feet. The compact round body of its roots expand into two broad, firm, flat palms, or flukes, gradually, shoaling away to less than an inch in thickness. At the crotcher junction, these flukes slightly overlap, then sideways recede from each other like wings, leaving a wide vacancy between. In no living thing are the lines of beauty more exquisitely defined than in the crescentric borders of the flukes. At its utmost expansion in the full-grown whale, the tail will considerably exceed twenty feet across. The entire member seems a dense webbed bed of welded sinews, but cut into it and you find that three distinct strata compose it, upper, middle, and lower. The fibers in the upper and lower layers are long and horizontal, those in the middle one very short, and running crosswise between the outside layers. This triune structure, as well as anything else, imparts power to the tail. To the student of old Roman walls, the middle layer will furnish a curious parallel to the thin course of tiles always alternating with the stones in those wonderful relics of the antique, and which undoubtedly contribute so much to the great strength of the masonry. But as if this vast local power in the tremendous tail were not enough, the whole bulk of the leviathan is knit over with a warp and woof of muscular fibers and filaments, which passing on either side the loins and running down into the flukes, insensibly bend with them and largely contribute to their might, so that in the tail the confluent measureless force of the whole whale seems concentrated to a point. Could annihilation occur to matter, this were the thing to do it. Nor does this, its amazing strength at all, tend to cripple the graceful flexation of its motions. Where infantilness of ease undulates through the titanism of power. On the contrary, those motions derive their most appealing beauty from it. Real strength never impairs beauty or harmony, but it often bestows it. And in everything imposingly beautiful, strength has much to do with the magic. Take away the tied tendons that all overseem bursting from the marble in the carved Hercules, and its charm would be gone. As devout Eckerman lifted the linen sheet from the naked corpse of Goethe, he was overwhelmed with the massive chests of the man that seemed as a Roman triumphal arc. When Angelo paints even God the Father in human form, mark what robustness is there. And whatever they may reveal of the divine love in the sun, the soft, curled, hermaphroditical Italian pictures in which his ideas has been most successfully embodied, these pictures, so destitute as they are of all brawniness, hint nothing of any power but the mere negative feminine one of submission and endurance, which on all hands it is conceded from the particular practical virtues of his teachings." Such is the subtle elasticity of the organ I treat of, that, whether wielded in sport or in earnest or in anger, whatever be the mood it be in, its flexations are invariably marking by exceeding grace. Therein no fairy's arms can transcend it. Five great motions are particular to it. First, when used as a fin for progression. Second, when used as a mace in battle. Third, in sweeping. Fourth, in lobtailing. Fifth, in peaking flutes. First, 
Being horizontal in its position, the leviathan's tail acts in a different manner from the tail of all other sea creatures. It never wiggles. In man or fish, wiggling is a sign of inferiority. To the whale, his tail is the sole means of propulsion. Scroll-wise, coiled forwards beneath the body, and then rapidly sprung backwards. It is this which gives the singular darting, leaping motion to the monster when furiously swimming. His side fins only serve to steer by. Second, it is a little significant that while one sperm whale only fights another sperm whale with his head and jaw, nevertheless, in his conflict with man, he chiefly and contemptuously uses his tail. In striking it about, he swiftly curves away his flukes from it, and the blow is only inflicted by the recoil. If it be in the unobscured air, especially if it descend to the mark, the stroke is simply irresistible. No ribs of man or boat can withstand it. Your only salvation lies in eluding it. But if it comes sideways through the opposing water, then partly owing to the light buoyancy of the whaleboat and the elasticity of its materials, a cracked rib or dashed plank or two, a sort of stitch in the side, is generally the most serious result. These submerged side blows are often received in the fishery, that they are accounted mere child's play. Someone strips off a frock, and the hole is stopped. Third, I cannot demonstrate it, but it seems to me that in the whale the sense of touch is concentrated in the tail, for in this respect there is a delicacy, and it's only equaled by the daintiness of the elephant's trunk. This delicacy is chiefly evinced in the action of sweeping, when a maidenly gentleness of the whale with a certain soft slowness, moves its immense fluke from side to side upon the surface of the sea, and if he feels but a sailor's whisker, woe to that sailor, whiskers and all. What tenderness there is in the preliminary touch. Had his tail the prehensible power, I should straightway think of me, a Darmanese elephant, that so frequented the flower market, and with low salutations presented noise-gaze to damsels, and then caressed the zones. One more accounts than one. A pity it is that the whale does not possess his prehensile virtue in his tail, for I have heard that yet another elephant, that when wounded in the fight, carved his trunk and extracted the dart. Fourth, stealing unawares upon the whale in the fancied security of the middle of solitary seas, you find him unbent from the vast corpulences of dignity, and kitten-like, he plays on the ocean as if it were a hearth. But still you see his power in his play. The broad palms of his tail are flirted high in the air, then smitting the surface, the thunderous conclusion resounds for miles. You would almost think a great hum had been discharged, and if you noticed the light wreath of vapor from the spiracle at his other extremity, you would think that that was the smoke from the touch hole. Fifth, as in the ordinary floating posture of the leviathan, the fluke lie considerably below the level of his back. They are then completely out of sight beneath the surface. But when he is about to plunge into the deeps, his entire fluke with its at least thirty feet of the body are tossed erect in the air, and so remain vibrating a moment, till they downwards shoot out of view. Accepting the sublime breach, somewhere else to be described, this peaking of the whale's flukes is perhaps the grandest sight to be seen in all animated nature. Out of the bottomless profundities of the gigantic tail seems spasmodically snatching at the highest heaven. So in dreams have I seen majestic Satan thrusting forth his tormented colossal claw from the flame Baltic of hell. But in gazing at such scenes, it is all in all what mood you are in. 
if in the Dantean the devils will occur to you, if in that of Isaiah the archangels, standing at the masthead of my ship during a sunrise has crimson sky and sea, I saw a large herd of whales in the east, all heading toward the sun, and for a moment vibrating in concert with peaked flukes. As it seemed to me the time, such a grand embodiment of adoration, of the gods was never beheld, even in Persia, the home of the fire-worshippers. As Ptolemy philosopher testified of African elephant, I then testify of the whale, pronouncing him the most devout of all beings. For according to King Juba, the military elephants of antiquity often hailed the morning with their trunks uplifted in the profoundest silence. The chance comparison in this chapter between the whale and the elephant so far as some aspects of the tail and one of the trunk and of the other concerned should not tend to those placed beyond the two opposite organs on equality, much less the creature to which they respectively belong. For the mightiest elephant is but a terrier to a leviathan. Compared with the leviathan's tail, his trunk is but the stalk of a lily. The most direful blow from the elephant's trunk were as a playful tap of a fan, compared with the measureless crush and crash of the sperm whale's ponderous flukes, which in repeated instances have one after the other hurled entire boats with all their oars and crews into the air, very much as an Indian juggler tosses his balls. Though all comparison in the way of general bulk between the whale and the elephants is preposterous, inasmuch as the particular elephant stands in much of the same respect to the whale that a dog does to the elephant, nevertheless, there are not wanting some point of curious similitude. Among these is the spout. It is well known that the elephant will often draw up water or dust in his trunk, and then, elevating it, jet it forth in a stream. The more I consider this mighty tale, the more I do deplore my inability to express it. At times there are gestures in it which, though they would well grace the hand of man, remain wholly inexplicable. In an extensive herd, so remarkable occasionally are these mythic gestures that I have heard hunters who have declared them akin to Freemason signs and symbols, that the whale indeed with these methods intelligently conversed with the world. Nor are there wanting motions of the whale in his general body, full of strangeness and unaccountable to his most experienced assailant. Dissect him how I may, then, I but go skin deep. I know him not, and never will. But if I know not even the tail of this whale, how understand the head? Much more, how comprehend his face, when face he has none? Thou shalt see my back parts, my tail, he seems to say, but my face shall not be seen. But I cannot completely make out his back parts, and hint what he will about his face. I say again, he has no face. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.